Suddenly I felt normal. And I started crying. And I knew it was my blood. You roll out your swag. And I, I lashed out. My mind opening up like a trapdoor. Majestic vindication. It was such a relief. So to your question, life. In everyday moments. Really strange, but really awakening. Conversations with Sarah Konoski on ABC Radio. On a little island off the coast of Dubrovnik in Croatia lies a village called Blato. It's a pretty place, full of old stone houses crowding into a valley surrounded by the sea. Two children born in that village nearly a century ago, named Maria and Mladen, shared a dramatic love story. It was marked by war, great risk, two photographic studios and a shotgun, especially for snakes. Mladen, known as Laddie, left Blato as a child for Australia. He grew up on a sugarcane farm in far north Queensland. When he was 28 years old, he wrote an urgent letter back to the old country, saying he was looking for a bride. And this is where our story begins. I'm joined by Maria and Laddie's daughter, Deborah Gavranich, who's written a book about her parents called The Girl Who Left. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Sarah. How did word reach the island in in the Adriatic Sea that a cane cutter in far north Queensland was looking for a bride? Well, I guess it would have been by mail. I think they would have written a letter um, back to the old country. Addressed to who? Just to sort of the women of Blato? (laughs) It's like farmer wants a wife. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We don't have the exact details because a lot of these people are passed on, but from what I can gather, I think it was my father's father, the grandfather, Dida, wrote to someone he knew in the village saying, my son wants a wife, do you know anyone? And it's a small village, you know, everyone nearly knows everyone else. So so they, um, I think the family that it went to, they had daughters, but one of them that was, they thought might be good, but she had had boyfriends or had a boyfriend and wasn't appropriate, but she had a friend called Maria who she thought would be perfect. So the word got to Maria that this man in Australia wants a wife. And why had your father and his family left the island in the first place? In the 1920s, it was after World War One. there was um, a lot of economic problems because there was an a bug called phylloxera. It was like an aphid that destroyed, that ate the roots and the leaves of the grapevines, which is their main industry, and the wine industry collapsed. So there was a lot of unemployment. So at that stage, a lot of people from my parents' village emigrated. Like one day a boat left carrying a 1,000 people. And this is a town that at one stage had 10,000 and then went to five. I think it's under 3,000. So a lot of people left mainly for Australia and America and um, some left to work, like my mother's father went to Broken Hill and worked and came back, but a lot left to stay. And my grandfather, on my father's side, he came over first cut cane, made money, enough money to bring out his wife and his children then. It was 
for a better life, I guess. And so your your dad grew up in in on this cane farm in North Queensland. And I have to ask Deborah on behalf of all the eligible girls in Mossman, why did he want a girl back from Croatia? Now that's a really interesting question. And you think growing up knowing our parents had a proxy marriage, one of us would have asked them that. <laughs> and for the life of us, we never really, we never said, Dad, why did you do that? Um, and I'm so sad we didn't. It was really hard to research and find out, why did Dad do that? And um, I asked my auntie, his sister, Auntie Mary, and she's 90 and lives in Mossman. And she said she doesn't really know because he was good looking. He was sporty. He was a lovely fellow. He, he was, had lots of girlfriends. And she said, in her words, he could have married anyone. But he wanted someone from the old town. So a few years ago, I said to my mother's sister, um, who was over there, and she speaks no English, why did my father look for a bride? And her answer was quite funny, I thought, because she said, well according to what she had heard, that the Mossman girls just wanted to shop. None of them would want to work <laughs> on a farm and live on a farm. <laughs> they would have known how hard it was to work on a yeah. cane farm, I guess. Yes, yes, and it was isolated. And he thought, like, if he brought someone from the old country, they would be satisfied to live on an isolated farm and also to work hard. I asked, I interviewed one of our neighbours last year, a woman in her 80s who lived on the farm next door to us. And I said to her, did you ever work on the farm? And she said, she wasn't Croatian, she was Australian. She said, no. And I, I thought my mother was always out stripping cane and, and helping with the tractors. So he got someone who was happy to help him on the farm and satisfied with this. This is my presumption, mm. I feel. And well, what was this sort of marriage something that your mum had considered beforehand or would it have come as, as something completely out of the blue for her as a young woman, still a teenager? I don't think she would have considered it. I mean, she loved her family, she loved her island, but you have to think she lived as a child through World War II in an occupied village. She, she knew hunger, she knew hardship. And I think this was an opportunity. It wasn't, there weren't a lot of women that did it, but there were a few from her village and she'd seen them. And my godmother was one of them at 15. And the boat my godmother came over, I think she said there were five of them from the village coming over as proxy brides. So it probably was not something she would have aspired to, but I think she saw that as an opportunity. Your mum had sisters who I guess were also considering whether they'd throw their hats in the ring in response to this proposal from a cane farmer in North Queensland. What did your mum's sisters think about this letter proposing marriage? Teda Shulva, her words, her exact words were, I will stay, I, I am not brave enough, I will stay poor but I will stay here. Yeah, younger sister's words was that she would n not be brave enough to make such a step. As you mentioned, Deborah, your mum's village was, of course, caught up in World War II. What had happened on her island in 1941? The World War II was in full force. Yugoslavia surrendered. At that stage, there were six states pulled together called Yugoslavia and they had a, 
a king and the king fled to England. And the part of Yugoslavia was given to Germany. Germany took it and the lower part was given to Italy. And the Italians invaded her island and they were there for about two years. So the island was under occupation. And what did that mean for people's daily lives, having the Italians in charge? Well, Mum never really talked a lot about it. Um, I've interviewed quite a lot of people, but like they took over houses, obviously good houses. My parents' house wasn't good enough, so my mother's house, so lucky for them. They took their food. There was no food. Um, the school stayed open while the Italians were occupying the village, but the teachers had to learn how to speak Italian and the lessons were conducted in Italian. Um, and a lot of the young people ran off to the hills and joined the partisan forces, which was under General Tito. And that was the, the communist forces, but they basically were attacking the Italians and trying to sabotage the Italians because they were occupying their island. They were fighting. They were like guerrillas or rebels and they, they, didn't, they, they would hide in the hills and come and attack if there was a solitary Italian soldier or, or something like that. And uh, a lot of the young people joined the partisans and my, my mum's sis, elder sister was one of them. Your mum was only a child. Was she involved in, in any of those actions? Yes, absolutely. And I, she never told us this. This is information I've received from going back to Croatia and talking to my cousins and their children. As children, they, were, they were, weren't suspected. So they would twist messages in their hair and they would walk up to the fields to where my grandfather would be working on the vineyard and and pass these messages to him that he would pass to the partisans hiding where the movements of the soldiers, so the soldiers could attack, or if there was, you know, olive oil being transported in a in a truck, they would attack that truck. And then one one particular incident, and it's in the history book there, I found it. They didn't say the name, but my cousin's son told me it was my 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 auntie, my teta Jova, they twisted a flag and hid it around her waist. And she went up to the fields and gave it to my grandfather who gave it to the partisans. And the next day the flag was flying from the, from the hills as, a, as an act of rebellion. So very brave because they would, be, they would be shot if they were caught. There was a curfew as well. They, they weren't allowed out after five at night and, and in the mornings. Why did the church bells in, in the village start ringing one day in September 1943? Italy had surrendered, okay? So the Italians had surrendered and they, they left. The Italians left. So the partisans all came out of hiding, back down into the um, square singing, dancing. They went to the cemetery. They were mourning the, the ones that have been killed, but the island was no longer occupied and that part of... Dalmatia. Part of Croatia that has got all the islands is called Dalmatia and split is the capital. So that area was no longer under occupation. It was again though in, in a few months, wasn't it, when the Germans occupied the island. What did that mean for, for life on, on the island? Yes. 
Yes. So for, for a little while, the partisans controlled the island, but the Germans were coming. They were on the mainland and they, they bombed the island. They bombed Korchula. They took over the island again. So all the partisans ran back into the hills. A lot of them left the island. They took their wounded with them. And the, the Germans were a lot crueler than the, the Italian occupiers. If they killed one soldier, German soldier, the Germans would kill 15 civilians. So it was, it was, it was tough. They closed the school. My mother was um, year four, I guess. She'd, she was nine. They, well, she would have been about 10 then, maybe. They closed the school and, um, and it, was, it was frightening. It was very frightening for them. What happened at the end of the war on that island? At the end of the war, there was a three-day war just prior to the end of the war where the only island that wasn't occupied was the island of Vis, V-I-S, which is the westernmost island closest to Italy. And that was where Tito, General Tito, ended up hiding there in a cave. And they had they used the island of Vis as a landing place um, for the Allies uh, right under the Germans' noses. The Germans were not aware this was happening. And they actually tried to take the island back, the partisans, and they, they, there was a war for three days and there were a lot of people killed, but they took a lot of German prisoners back to Viz with them. But then the Germans were weakening and retreating and the, there was more and more bombing going on and eventually Germany surrendered. And General Tito took over and set up a, a communist government in, in Yugoslavia. So this is the sort of bigger historical context in which young Maria decides to answer this letter written by the young Mossman cane farmer. What was the most important thing for her to send in that first letter, Deborah? A photograph. <laughs> And I think she wanted to see a photograph too because <laughs> <laughs> she wanted to see who might be on the other end of this letter, I think. So where did she have to go to, to get her photograph taken? Well, there was no professional studio on the island, so my father's uncle, uh, Mr Anich, took her by a ferry to the town of Split and they had professional photographs taken there. And what does that photo look like that your mum well, sent to your dad? Well, I have a photo that she sent to him and a, a photo that he sent to her and, and they were both beautiful-looking people. I've seen those photos and I can attest that you're not just being subjective. They really are gorgeous. Your mum, <laughs> your mum, it's a studio portrait in, in black and white and she's sort of gazing off into the distance. It really is a lovely image. How, how would you describe it? She looks very young and naive, I think, very, very sweet, I think, she's, and which is what she was. And what about your dad? How did he come across in, in the photograph that he sent? I think just a really good-looking, ethnic-looking man, actually. <laughs> he had a gorgeous head of hair and a, and a suit and a smile. It is a, they're yes. both lovely photographs. Yes. So they, they must have both been impressed by this initial uh, indication of what each other looked like because they, they really started writing. How quickly did the relationship sort of develop between them across the oceans? Look, Sarah, we have no idea. This is, hasn't been spoken. It would have taken a while because the letters didn't travel quickly. Um, phone calls were expensive. So I think, but the funny thing is my mother was a prolific letter writer because she used to write 
letters back to her family and also to my sisters when they were, we all went to boarding school and my sisters could speak and read and write Croatian. I'm the youngest, I couldn't. So she used to write wonderful letters to them, but my father, when he was pushed, would write me a letter and it would be a little notebook page with the tennis scores, the cricket scores, what, he, what fish he caught, and that was about it. So I wonder what sort of letters he wrote to her because he was not he was not a prolific letter writer. <laughs> well, something must have worked because they, they decided to have a proxy wedding. What does that mean? It's not an arranged marriage. It's a proxy marriage is someone stands in for the groom at the wedding. It's a legal wedding. And the reason why that had to happen because initially my father had written to my mother and said, look, we seem to be getting on well. My family will pay for you to come and live with our family and if we still like each other, we'll get married. But my father didn't realise that my mother couldn't leave the country. It was a communist country. She was not allowed to leave until she was married. So it had to be a proxy marriage and they both agreed to that. And so what happened at the at the proxy wedding? Well, my father sent over material for the wedding dress because there was nothing there. It was post-World War II. There was nothing. So he sent over metres of fabric and the local dressmaker made a beautiful dress. She, uh, she had a veil. It was like a proper wedding and my father's first cousin, Kuzma Anich, stood in as a groom and they married in a registry office, like a, a hall, I guess, because they weren't allowed to marry in the Catholic Church because um, Catholicism was very much not part of the communist regime. And um, once they were mar- they married, maybe had a little party afterwards, but that was it. <laughs> I so, wonder if she got ribbed at all for having a missing groom after that wedding. She did. She <laughs> did. Because it took a year for all the documents to be processed, so... From the time she got married till the time she got on the boat, it was about a year. And the young boys in the village would follow her around saying, you're married, you're married, where's your groom, where's your husband? (laughs) Well, she finally got the papers that were allowing her to, to travel out to Australia. Where did she start her journey? How did it begin? There was a a couple from the village that were going to Sydney. So my grandfather asked if my mother could be in the cabin next to them so they could look after her on the boat. And there was a, another proxy bride from the next door, the village next door, Smokvitsa, that my mother would be sharing a cabin with, but that didn't happen until Italy. So they got a, um, a ferry from the island and they travelled to Split where they got on a train and travelled through northern Yugoslavia, through Italy to Genoa. That's where they got on the boat called the MV Australia. It's kind of an extraordinary thing to imagine what might have been going through your mum's mind as she says goodbye to everything she's ever known to embark on this completely unknown life and unknown husband. Oh. Oh, so brave, Sarah, so brave. I just can't even imagine how she would have felt because she was very, very close to her father as well and she was very sad to leave her father as well as her family. so And there was no coming back. If It had to work, Sarah. If, if she didn't like her husband, she couldn't come back. It would have brought shame. To, well, she had no money to come back, but it would have brought shame to the family. 
You say that she was she was sharing a cabin with another another young woman who was going off to meet a, a new husband. What happened to to that young woman? She was from the village next door, and um, she actually her marriage didn't work, and um, she committed suicide. So stakes were high, I guess. Oh, absolutely. She arrived in this new country in Australia. Who met Maria at Circular Quay? Well, that's a story I didn't hear about until I interviewed our neighbour from the farm next door who told me this whole story. Mum never told us this. Uh, she expected our father to be there, but it was her father-in-law, Dida, the grand, our grandfather. He wouldn't let my father leave the farm and he came down to collect the new bride. My gosh, I must, you must have thought you don't look like your photo when he first well, appeared. <laughs> well, I think probably she would have thought that maybe he'd sent a photo of himself while he was a young man because that sort of thing did happen. <laughs> and she thought, oh, my God, my husband's really old. <laughs> but then she found out it was the father-in-law. But my, my grandfather was a very severe, severe man, not terribly nice, not like her own father. So I can only imagine how hard it would have been for her. And what happened when they got to Sydney? He apparently paraded her around to all the Croatian people he knew saying, look at the new bride my son has just got. What a wonderful new bride. And then they got on the train and came all the way up to Cairns by train. Which would have taken how long in those days? I'm saying it could have been three or four days. I'm not sure. It's a long time to spend with the father-in-law that you've just met. Yes, I agree. <laughs> My poor mother. <laughs> so when did when did she first meet Laddie, her, her new husband? I, I presume it would have been at the train station. And um, according to my auntie, my auntie Marion Mossman, she said it was love at first sight. She said they adored each other, which is really good news. <laughs> it really is good news. Do you think that's true? Can you really have, can they really have fallen in love at first sight or do you think it took a bit of time? Well, apparently my older sister told me this story that my, my father said to my mother, look, we don't know each other. You can just be like my sister and we can get to know each other. And if you feel that you can't fall in love with me, we will annul the marriage and I can send you home. You know, I will not force you to be in a marriage with a man you don't think you can love. But my older sister was born a year later, so I think they fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have a honeymoon or, or a second wedding when they were both there in person? Yeah, both, both. Um, they went off to Coranda for their honeymoon. There is a, a wonderful story about an engagement ring that my uh, auntie overseas told me that uh, my dad had an engagement ring for her because he didn't want to send it in the post and so he presented it to her when they got to their motel and she had never seen such a beautiful piece of jewellery and she put it on and she's admiring it and he walks down the outside to give her some privacy if she wanted to change and comes back and she's still sitting there looking at the ring. He goes, oh. So he goes out into the corridor. And this happened about three times and he was getting a bit concerned. He, he didn't know what to do. And he said to her, I think you like that ring more than me. And she said no and gave him a big hug. So this is the story from my auntie in Croatia. <laughs> and then they had a wedding back in on the cane farm in, in Mossman. So um, we have a photo of that in the book of them having their wedding. And how, how big was that, do you know? Like what, what kind of event would that have been? 
Well, our farmhouse was quite a large farmhouse. It had uh, an L-shaped veranda around half the house that was used for dances, so it was quite large. And so they would have put trestle tables all the way down and, and filled them with the, the local farmers, the local people, his friends, his tennis mates, his card mates. So, um, yeah, it was a celebration. Who else was there when she, when she joined your dad, Deborah? Who was in the family? Oh, yeah, there was my grandfather, Dida, there was um, my dad and my auntie, who was a year older than my mother, um, Auntie Mary, who was there for about a year before she got married. And, and she's such a darling person. And, and these two women clicked. And as my Auntie Mary said, my mum was a sister she never had. And they, they got on beautifully. There just seemed to have been so many ways this story could have gone terribly wrong, Deborah. I feel yes. like... <laughs> From the from the groom to the father-in-law to the sister, it seems almost miraculous that, uh, that the relationships flourished the way they did. Uh, yeah, I think someone was looking out for her. <laughs> it's such a wonderful story, Deborah. Surely there's a movie that's just waiting to be made about your mother and father's love story. Oh, that would be my absolute dream. And a lot of people have actually been saying this would be a wonderful movie, yeah, the, the far north Queensland rainforest you know, with the Croatian island and there's the war and there's the love story. But that we have a joke in our family because Eric Banner, his real name is Eric Banadinovic. I did not know that. He's Croatian. Have you got him tough to play your dad? Yes. <laughs> he would be a dead ringer for my father. Yeah, they're both good looking. They're both, you know, lovely blokes. So Is Eric would... aware of this yet, Deborah's no. plan? <laughs> I'm hoping his agent's listening. <laughs> my my ne one of my nephews said, I'll even play an Italian soldier. I don't mind getting shot. <laughs> This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. On Conversations, my guest is Deborah Gavranich. Deborah's mum and dad were married in a proxy wedding with her mum, Maria, in her village on an island off the coast of Croatia, while her dad, Laddie, was on his cane farm in far north Queensland. So, Deborah, when your mum finally arrived in Cassowary Valley outside of Mossman, she would have had so much to adapt to, so much to learn. How did she go with the language? Uh, I mean, she was smart. I mean, she was a quick learner, but they played terrible tricks on her. I mean... Croatian was spoken in the house um, and everyone could speak Croatian, but my, my dad, he was, you know, he was Australian. He was here since he was five and my auntie was born here. And so they wanted her to learn English quickly. So they would do terrible things like tell her rude words and make her go into the butcher shop asking for rude things. Oh, and no. <laughs> so, so she learned pretty quickly how to speak English. 
<laughs> what did she think of the tropics? Was that a, a kind of frightening environment to suddenly land in the middle of from an oh. island in the Adriatic Sea? Oh, yes. And as my auntie said, they, they gave her a week to settle in and then she had to help with the chores. So one of the chores was they had um, horses and one of the jobs, you had to get up three o'clock in the morning to feed the horses. And um, so mum had to do that. So you you get chop-chop, which is the tops of the sugarcane in a, in a bucket and you walk down the creek at the back of our house and up to where the stables were and and you'd have to sort of swing around because all the cane toads were hopping everywhere and you'd have to feed the horses at three o'clock in the morning and that was one particular job Auntie Mary said was pretty pretty tough, <laughs> especially she'd never seen cane toads, snakes. Well, how um, many snakes were there on the on the farm? Oh, heaps of snakes. I think we lost a lot of cats to snakes. <laughs> so, and, and how did your dad deal with them? Well, we had a gun in our bathroom, okay, so he used to use that for shooting things and uh, he used to, if there was a snake in the, in the shed, we had a laundry out the back. Um, and for example, if the snakes hit up there, he'd just go get the gun and shoot them and put all these holes in the laundry roof until, um, I think my mother complained. And so he made a contraption, which I remember very vividly. It was a great big long stick, like a bamboo stick or, and he put two nails in the end, like in a V shape. And so what he'd do is he'd pin the head of the snake in the grass with this V and then get a cane knife and slice off the head. So that was his snake-killing contraption. Do you remember <laughs> watching that happen? Yes, yes. And then he'd he'd throw the snake's body at us because it would wriggle oh. everywhere and the cats would be excited because they'd be trying to play with it. Yes, it, I remember many times him killing snakes this way. And as well as feeding the horses, what other sort of jobs did your mum have to do on the farm? What do you remember her doing? Um, I remember her working in the farm, actually. She would, and when we went to school, she'd put on her big, she was very, she was beautiful. She had a lovely complexion, so she would always protect her skin. She had put on a big hat and long-sleeved dad's clothes and, and go out and, and strip cane in the paddock and help the men in the paddock. And, and I would come home, and if she knew that she was going to be in a particular paddock, she'd get, tell me where to get the bus to drop me at the paddock near the Buns Farm or and she'd have afternoon tea there for me and I'd sit and do my homework in the paddock while she stripped cane. But what would she have for afternoon tea for you? Oh, I loved it. Chocolate blancmange every day. <laughs> Lucky you, Deborah. I know. That's a very fond memory. <laughs> and she was stripping the cane. What does that involve? Is that hard work? Oh, yes. I did that as a kid as well. You get things called hairy marys in your fingers that you can't get out because there was no such things as gloves or shoes. You'd the cane cutters would cut the cane and if you wanted to have cane for planting, you needed to strip all the trash off it. And so you'd just rip all the um, dried leaves off it. So how I would hated you, How that. would you get rid of those prickles, those hairy marrows? You'd have to rub them in the gravel to get... get they're all tiny little prickles all through. They're like furry prickles and they were, you couldn't pull them out. You had to rub them out by rubbing your hands in the gravel. One of the, the really kind of quite wonderful or distinctive things about cane farms are those cane fires. I remember them from being a kid in Queensland. What was it like on the farm when it was time to burn the cane? Oh, that was fun. We used to all help. Um, everyone would have a, a bag of um, 
a sugarcane bag, empty sugarcane bag that we would have be wet so that we could be at the edges. If there were any flying embers, we'd have to make sure we got them and there'd be animals scurrying out from the farm. There'd be bandicoots and there'd be snakes and uh, and it was a, a fierce thing, the fire. It would It's so hot and it would roar up into the sky and there was always the fear that that it would jump onto another paddock or it could be your neighbour's paddock, like some if we were next to other cane farms. And then there would be the ash afterwards. You'd make sure there was nothing, no clothes on the, on the line because the ash would all come down like, it was like snow, grey snow. And would yeah, you ever so. get to nibble any of the cane? Oh, it was, burnt cane was wonderful. You'd chop a bit off and you'd peel it and, and chew on the, on the sugar or there would be little drops of sugar on the outside that you'd lick. So, yeah, no, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was a lovely childhood growing up on this farm. We were very, very lucky. Where did you go to school when you were a little kid? There was I lived in a place called Cassari Valley and it was full of sugarcane farms. A lot of them were ethnic, a lot of Croatians, quite a few from our village because you go to where you know people. And there was a little school called Cassari State School and it, it had one teacher and there would have been about 20 children in the school. So I went there for grade one and two and then they decided there weren't enough children to warrant a teacher, so they closed it down and I went into Mossman to the local Catholic school and we'd catch the bus in there. The the granddad, your granddad, your mum's father-in-law, who'd gone down to bring her from Sydney back up to, to Mossman, what role did he have on the farm? That can often be a tricky thing with fathers and sons or inheriting property. How did that work out in your family? He had already retired by the time I was born but it was his farm and my father wanted to be a doctor and at the age of after grade seven was told no you have to work on the farm so my father worked on this farm but never got paid if he wanted to take my mum to the movies he'd have to ask for cash even as an adult married oh, to your mum with the yes. kids he had no, he had no, no, no cash wages income. no wages no, no wages no and that was just how it happened and then when um, about a year or two after my mother arrived, my grandfather, his wife had died a few years prior, wanted another wife. So he found a proxy bride from our village and brought her out, my, my step-grandmother, Tetamora. And so my father said, well, uh, you're going to, he was going to retire. And so my father said, well, can I, you know, buy the farm? And he, he said, well, I'm going to sell the farm. And he said, well, I've never been paid wages. And he said, well, that doesn't matter. And he said, well, can you loan me some money so I can get a deposit? And he said, no. He said, it's not his problem. Gosh, and, um, did that lead to a falling out between no, your dad and no. his dad? My father was such a lovely man. No, he was a, a very kind, good man. He ended up getting a loan from his uncle who was on the neighbouring farm, who gave him £400 so he could borrow money to buy his father's father out from this farm that he'd worked on since he was 12. And he actually still remained a dutiful son. He was a... My father had no enemies. He was a, he was a very, very kind, good man. So when did your mum and dad sell the farm? In 1974, um, there were, I have three siblings, there's three girls and a boy, and when my brother finished year 12, my father was holding on to the farm in case my brother, John, wanted to come back and take over. 
And when John said, no, I'm off to uni, within three months he'd sold it to his neighbours. And uh, my father was only 50, but he, he was very unwell with arthritis um, from when I was one. So he, he suffered. He suffered on this farm. So he, as soon as he could, he sold the farm and, and they decided to move to Cairns. What did your dad offer your mum after he'd sold that cane farm? He offered her a trip back to the old country. And was this the first time that, that she'd been back since she left as a young woman? Yes, it was. I was in grade nine at boarding school and she went with my godmother, who is my dad's cousin um, from near Tully, Faluga, and my Tedamora. They both went together and they were both proxy brides that had come out in the same year and it was their first time back. Um, I, I think my mother was... It was very excited, but it was quite poignant in one way, quite sad because she'd lost her father. Her father had died eight years earlier and that was really sad that she never did get to see him again. Um, but she did. She went back and um, saw her, her mother was there and her siblings and um, I think it was quite emotional for her. Had your mum spoken to you much about the island, about the, the village of Blateau when you were growing up, Deborah? Oh, absolutely. We grew up very aware that we had a whole family in another country, that we had cousins our ages and uh, mum would, you know, write frequently and mum would send parcels all the time. She was always sending money, sending our clothes. We would get photos of our cousin. For example, I remember... One of my cousins is two years younger and a photo of her in my first Holy Communion dress with my shoes and she would be forever helping them financially. And we were very aware of this whole family of my mothers that lived in another island. And, and it, to me it was, it was a bit of a fairy tale. It was exotic thinking that I had this, all these cousins in another country that spoke another language, that lived a different lifestyle to, to myself. Um, I mean, we, we're usually not aware of our parents' emotional life or their, their inner struggles when we're kids. But when you look back, do you think that your mum was homesick or was she at peace with this new place that she was raising her own family in? Oh, I'm sure she was homesick. Like, um, my sister would remember when she'd get letters from her, her family, she would often run run to the toilet because she'd be crying because it was just all too much for her. She would have been very homesick. But, you know, my mother was such a positive woman and, and you know, she had a great husband and she loved her family and she loved Australia. She really actually was very grateful for what Australia gave her, the freedom, the opportunities. She she was never regretful. Mm. When did you first go to this family island? When I was uh, 22, I graduated from uni, worked a year and I saved up enough money and myself and another physio friend put our backpacks on and off we went. And what so, was arriving on, on the island like by boat? What happened? Well, well, it was interesting. Well, my mother had actually said to me, oh, if you go visit the family, Debbie, Debbie, don't go in your little short shorts. You know, you'll look like a hobo. You know, don't carry a backpack. You know, shame. So I actually had to buy a backpack that could convert into a suitcase, which was not what I wanted to do, and I had to pack good clothes high heels and a nice outfit, which was uh, which I tossed afterwards. <laughs> and before 
actually before we even got to the island, we were um, we stayed in Dubrovnik, and um, that was quite interesting because we'd come up from the Greek islands, and my friend and I we went to the, we were staying in some little pension, and we went to one of their little dancing clubs, and my friend Lynn turned around and said to me, she goes, oh my gosh, they all look like you. And and it is, we have got a look, we Dalmatian men and women, we're tall, we've got high cheekbones. And it was this sense of, oh my gosh, I belong here. And then we got to the island and um, so I quickly converted my my backpack into a suitcase and put on my good clothes. Put your high heels in your oh, skirt. It was trousers, nice trousers, trousers lucky, okay, but very pretty green <laughs> trousers, and and it's cobbled, and yeah, and I've got high heels. I'm lucky I didn't sprain an ankle or fracture an ankle, and I'm struggling with this very heavy backpack. We got, and there was no. My mother knew through letters. I my mother had let them know what day we were arriving, and so it was presumed I was going to stay with my auntie in the middle of the island in Blato but we landed in the main town called Korchula, which is beautiful. And I said to my travelling companion, Lynn, I said, I've actually got an auntie that lives here, you know. And she said, oh, well, why aren't we staying with her first? Why do we have to, you know, it's hot, we're tired. I said, yeah, let's just go stay with her. So it's a small town. So, you know, my Croatian's very limited at this stage. I'm getting better. And so I asked around where Dobrila Petkovic lived and everyone points and they pointed and I, we went up and knocked on the door and she was quite shocked that we were there, but obviously very happy. So she made us a bed for the night and called all the family and, and then promptly put us on the bus the next day to go where we should have been. We got on the bus with all the ladies with their chickens and there's a new highway there now, but this road back in the 80s went through all the villages and my, my auntie, Tata Jova, and, and her children were waiting for me at the other end and showered us with love and we had dinner that night and it was I realised that it was their only chicken and they'd killed it the, the day before and cooked it the day before for us, but we'd got there a day late. So it just sort of made me realise, you know, how poor they were and... Yeah, this was this was a big thing. This cousin mm. from Australia coming, and um, but they were they were they're beautiful people. What did they make of you? What did they think about you and and the life that you'd been leading in Australia? I know even now when I go back, um, Australia is really seen the, as the land of opportunity. Like when they ask how much does an air ticket cost, and they nearly fall over to think that we have that much money that we can buy a plane ticket. But in this little village in Blato, it's quite interesting. It's probably about a bit under 3,000 people there. It's not touristy because the tourists go to the coastal towns like Prikradica and Prishba. So the only people coming to this village are family, so coming back to visit family. So you, you, everyone will say, well, who are you related to? And I'm Gavranich, but Gavranich is like Smith over there. There's all sorts of Gavraniches. And... you. Got, in the library there is quite cute because they have this corner in the library called the Australia Corner where they've got all this Australian maps and knickknacks because there is such a huge link to Australia because people from this village, they don't scatter, they go to pockets. There are pockets of Blato people or Blachini, they're called in Australia. Cairns and Mossman and Mariba is a big pocket and Tully. Uh, Sydney the Sydney Croatian Club, 90% is from my village. <laughs> I, 
I know because I rang them while I was going to do an event there and I said, I don't, I think you may not know, but I'm from Blato. It's a little village. And she said, darling, 90% are from Blato <laughs> and Broken Hill and Perth are the other areas where my village, um, where the diaspora go to. Yes. And when you first arrived back there at, at 22, was there anyone in the family hoping that maybe you were coming to find a spouse of your own to take oh, back? Oh, well, they all tried to marry me off. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, because especially one of my cousins said, you know, you need to marry a man from Blato, keep the bloodline pure. <laughs> and when I went back with my daughters years later, they tried to marry them off. <laughs> you didn't take their advice, Deborah? No, no, I've got a wonderful, wonderful husband who's half Irish. But having said that, I would have been lovely to have 100% pure Croatian children, <laughs> but now nah, I'm, I'm happy with Michael. <laughs> It's good for the for the genetic pool to be a bit diverse, I think. <laughs> Did your mum get to visit her home again in Croatia? Yes, yes. So she sadly got diagnosed with cancer in 1994. She was only young. She was about 62. She was always positive. She, You would never know she was unwell. She was just this wonderful woman who had a zest for life. And so we said to her, look, why don't we send you back and you can see your family again? And so we sent her back one more time and it was 1995. And it was the Homeland War. Another war had erupted. Um, Yugoslavia was basically falling apart. Everyone was wanting independence and Croatia was wanting independence. And the Croatian War went on for quite a quite a while. It went on for about five years Um was a nasty, nasty war. And we, we basically thought it was over, so that's why we thought it was safe for Mum to go. But uh, it wasn't. She landed uh, in Split and stayed with my uncle first. He lived on the mainland. And she'd only been there about two or three days when the final push for independence happened. It was called Operation Storm. One of my cousins called Yakutsa lives on the island, rang my uncle and said, look, there's fighting happening again. I don't think it's safe for her to stay on the mainland. Let's get her over to the island where it's safer. And so they all bundled into a car and and my mother told me that they pulled aside and the tanks were rumbling past and she, she was horrified. She said, actually, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. She said, you know, she left because of war and she was worried war would happen again and here it was, her country was at war again and all these young men that weren't soldiers but were part of this army defending their country, trying to get independence. So we actually ended up pulling her home early. We were were a bit worried about her. Your mum passed away in in 1996. Why did you want to write this book about her life? Deborah? you're a physio. You've got a perfectly good job. Why are you you wanting to write the story of your mum and dad? Oh, Sarah, ever since I was about five, I've wanted to write this story. It's been in me a long time. I, my my children didn't know our parents, my parents, our kids didn't know them. And it was basically for them and for the other grandchildren and the generations to come that did not know our parents and did not know my mother's amazing story. And it was for them, basically. How did spending time in in Blato on the island, how did that help you in writing the book? 
Oh, I loved it. I, I love being in Croatia. I've just recently got my citizenship. They relaxed the rules um, at the beginning of last year because they used to be very strict. And I'm going to get a passport and I want to go back uh, and maybe stay six months. The The island is beautiful. The people are beautiful. The food's beautiful. I've become very close to my cousins and they're wonderful people. One of my cousins is named after my mother and she's very much like my mother and her name's Maria. My language has improved. I'm Every month I there's a group of us women who either were born there or descendant from Blato that get together and we call ourselves the Croatian princesses <laughs> and we, we have coffee every month and we're only allowed to speak Croatian for two hours and it's, it's wonderful. It, they're, they're much more fluent but I'm getting better and going to that island, the first time I came, Sarah, it's, it's like I came home. And people have told me this, other Croatian people, but also people from other nationalities, it's almost like a genetic memory that you step onto this land and you just feel it in your bones. And I do. I mean, I'm proudly Australian and would never live anywhere else. But, you know, I'm very aware of my ancestry. And I mean, my parents, their, their parents, my family trees go back hundreds and hundreds of years on this island, mind you, on this island. COVID has thrown a spanner in the works of almost every book launch over the last 18 months. It affected the launch that you wanted to have here in Australia. But what kind of launch was put on for you in Plateau, back in the island? Well, that's a nice story because I did have a couple of launches planned that I I, I had to cancel, but I actually got a lot of did a lot of research in the Blato Library, and I actually, when I finished the book, I emailed them and said, "Look, my book's finished. Would you like a copy for your library?" And they said, "Oh, yes, but we'll do more than that. We'll hold a launch for you." And it was a big affair. It happened about two weeks ago, and it's during the summer, and so they're all on holidays, and all the like my older cousins, the children who live on the mainland are back on the island as they do. They come back to see their parents and they swim all day and so the launches has to be like at 8.30 at night because everyone's on the beach all day. And they set it up in the square, uh, main square at night and they actually had uh, an official interpreter and we zoomed in. So they, I would have loved to have been there but we zoomed in. It was 4.30 in the morning in Australia <laughs> and if I'd... Lucky I put a bit of lipstick on because they sent photos later of the launch and they had this huge screen in the middle of this square with my face on it. <laughs> I thought, oh, goodness. Oh, thank God I had the lipstick on. And Imagine uh, the had... way you would have shamed your mother if you hadn't, Deborah. Oh, my goodness. She would have been horrified. <laughs> and um, we had a lot of people Zooming in like... Um, Two, our two daughters live don't live in Cairns, so they zoomed in in their in their pajamas. Lucky they weren't on the big screen. <laughs> and people all over Australia, my siblings, my my nephews, and my my cousins on the mainland in Croatia zoomed in, and it was it was a big thing. It, they um, the book is like even I follow their the library um, Facebook page and yesterday they did a book reading club in the nursing home at Blato and a lot of the people in there remember my mother. So, you know, this, is, this isn't so long ago. And it's a story with two sides, isn't it? It's the story of the people who left but also of, of the people who stayed and I guess your book and your visits is a way to, to bring those two sides together again. 
exactly, exactly. You you mentioned that when your mother and father had this proxy wedding and your mum was still on Blatto on the island, your father sent over some beautiful material for her to make a wedding dress. What ended up happening to that dress? Well, she left it there for her younger sister because at that stage her older sister was married. A lot of there was no material. A lot of people made wedding dresses from parachutes, things like that, that were left over from the war. So she left it for her sister to use. Her sister married, I think, one or two years later. And then a couple of years ago on one of my trips over, my auntie actually told me that the wedding dress was worn by 24 women in the village. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> they must have all been the same shape because it was quite a fitted dress, this beautiful Australian fabric. <laughs> it's just a beautiful story. Thank you so much for, for telling us on Conversations. Thank you so much, Sarah. I've really enjoyed it. Deborah Gavranich was my guest on Conversations today and Deborah's book is called The Girl Who Left, From Croatia to the Cane Fields. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 